on this episode of the London Lyceum. We talk with Andreas Beck about Gisbertus Fuzius. So we cover all sorts of things like who in the world is Fuzius, what is his context, what are the important things that he's written, who are the most important theological and philosophical influences for him, was he influenced by important medieval figures like Thomas or Scotus or others, how did he receive them, what did Fuzius think about freedom, contingency, was he similar to others in the early modern period, did he differ from other early reformers? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, where a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. We think that we need more clear, sophisticated uh, answers in light of pressing problems that we are encountering. But when we talk about serious thinking, we want to encourage you to think about several sets of virtues when you think about that, because serious thinking isn't just an academic exercise. It should be things that are promoting uh, what we consider an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So we think that being a serious thinker entails actually caring about other people, uh, being virtuous in our disposition of how we interact with ideas and thoughts and other human people, and that we are doing it with respectful tones, but also doing it at the highest level of quality. Now, I'm thrilled to introduce you all today to Dr. Andreas Beck. So Dr. Beck and I have been planning on this interview for some time, and I've been thrilled about it. He's written a, a new book on Gisbertus Fuzius, and I think Fuzius is one of the most important figures in my mind of the Reform post-Reformation era. And I, as we're recording this today, just saw a new book review of Dr. Beck's work from Jordan Baller. And it was very positive. Michael Lynch, I believe, did a review for our website as well. Loved the book. So this is going to be a lot of fun talking to Dr. Beck about Fuzius and his work. So before we get started discussing Fuzius, I'd love to, to know a little bit, Dr. Beck, where is it that you teach? Um, and then maybe tell me what was it that first interested you in Fuzius and his own and his own works? Yeah, thank you so much, Jordan, for this kind introduction. I'm now curious for this um, review. I didn't see it, um, but uh, uh, my name is Andreas Beck. Um, I was born and raised in Germany on the Swabian Jura or Swabian Alps. And during my time at Gymnasium High School, I also studied music and I learned the piano, um, the organ, the violoncello and played in uh, several orchestra and so on and music was very important to me but i decided to study theology and for that i went to switzerland where i was living was close to the swiss border not so far away and i studied for five years um, in basel at the staatsunabhängige theologische hochschule that's a private um, a seminary um, interdenominational and where I did um, a bachelor, a master, my first master. But after these five years of studies, I had the idea that I only was looking at the surface of some theological work <laughs> within those fields. I, I, I just wanted to study more. I wanted to explore further. Plus, I discovered um, the reformed tradition during my studies. I'm personally uh, born and raised within the Lutheran Church, 
and I consider myself still as a member of the Lutheran Church, but I discovered the Reformed tradition. And there was a possibility to move to the Netherlands um, after my studies in Basel, and that is what I did. I was living in the home of um, the parents of um, a good friend who then later married one of my uh, sisters. And um, I was studying at the Theological University in Abeldoorn with uh, somebody like uh, Van Speiger, writing a thesis on Martin Butzer, and Van Renderen writing a thesis on um, Jürgen Moltmann. And I graduated there with my second master in 1992. And um, both of my professors uh, tried to convince me that I should expand my thesis which I wrote on the respectively the one or the other, um, into uh, a PhD dissertation. But I was not so much interested in Martin Butcher at that time because um, there was already quite some research on the Reformation and less interested in Moltmann because I thought, and Moltmann is admitting that himself, as his argumentation is maybe more rhetorical sometimes than strictly logical. And from my music background, I started getting very interested in the um, Baroque period. I love Baroque music. I'm a great admirer of Johann Sebastian Bach. I did an analysis of his Art of a Fugue. And I saw that um, if you have uh, music which is very well structured, thought through, it's almost mathematics, that still can go together with bringing a lot of emotion to the listener. So it's not a contradiction. And um, there is such a high level of quality in music, in art, in architecture during that time, that it was disturbing me but both from a more evangelical side or a more um, liberal side, from both sides, there was not so much interest in the post-Reformation period at that time in the early 90s. And I then found out that a figure who is quite well known in the low countries in the Netherlands, everybody knew who Fuzius was, and there were these uh, thick volumes full of Latin disputations, not translated, and nobody seemed to work on them. There was virtually no recent secondary literature on Fuzius. And when I thought this would be something interesting to explore. At Abeldon, my professors warned me because that would be scholasticism and as if it is something dangerous. <laughs> Today, um, the atmosphere is different in Abeldon, but at that time, there was um, uh, scholasticism seen as something which maybe um, would not be so worthwhile to study when the Reformation period itself. And I went to the University of Utrecht and um, asked whether there might be a possibility to engage in studying figures like Fuzius. And yes, yeah, we were a little bit amazed that somebody from Germany came up with that idea, but why not? <laughs> and when I became a member of a wonderful uh, research group 
that uh, started in uh, 1992. Um, that was the classic reformed uh, theology research group, which still exists. And we were working on several volumes. Later, we had also the reformed thought on freedom volume. I will tell more about that. I'm sure it's young interview. And the last uh, big project were three volumes uh, of the um, uh, um, Leiden synopsis. Um, but well, back to the 90s, um, there was the possibility that I could apply, apply for a scholarship, which was very tricky to get, very hard. Um, but I tried to get one. And um, because of that scholarship, I could start working at the University of Utrecht as a research fellow, being paid by the government, by the um, uh, Dutch government, for um, the rest of almost, almost the rest of the 90s. And that was a wonderful time. That was a time in which I was uh, doing a lot of research and I made a detour to the Middle Ages. Uh, I also became a member of the uh, Chantan Scotus Research Group, which also still exists. I became a member of the uh, Thomas Institute, Thomas Aquinas, and did a lot of research um, regarding the Middle Ages. I also um, met my wife, um, who studied art. She is from Friesian, the very northern part of the Netherlands. Our first daughter, Hildegard, was born in 1998. And when I got offers for positions, even if my PhD um, dissertation was not ready yet, I got offers from Basel, from Germany, but also in Leuven, Louvain, in Belgium, from the Evangelical Theological Faculty, who was just behind the crisis. And I saw really some potential there. And it had the advantage that I could continue um, working at these research groups in the Netherlands, the Classic Theology, Classic Reform Theology Research Group, Chandan Skodos Research Group, that it would be in a Dutch-speaking environment, which would be easy for my wife, and so on. So there were many advantages. And when since um, January 2000, I'm working full time now at the Evangelical Theological Faculty. And I came uh, for the library. I was librarian in the beginning and um, uh, lecturer in historical theology. But quite soon, we had in Europe um, the Bologna reform. And I was asked to chair um, a working group for the Bologna reformed. And when I was asked whether I would um, become the academic dean, and there was now really nobody else who could do the transition uh, to the bachelor master system and to full accreditation and so on. And finally, yeah, I, that was not my intention, but finally I have been for 19 years academic dean, a lot of involved in administration. But still, I always tried to um, uh, continue doing research. Uh, after we had our first big accreditation, which was really a big issue at that time in 2005, 2006, I got a sabbatical, 
which allowed me to finally finish my PhD dissertation. It was almost ready when I went to Louvain, but when I could uh, finish it, and it was when published in 2007 with uh, Van den and Ruprecht. And this very um, book is the basis also now for the English edition. It is uh, substantially revised, especially in the footnotes, as I was uh, using 250 additional sources and I was um, really going through the whole text and um, revising where I thought that revision would be necessary, although the main structure is precisely the same and the translation had been done uh, by um, uh, Albert Grotius, uh, uh, a pupil from uh, Richard Muller, who did an uh, excellent job. Although um, German is um, a language which is not so easy for him to understand, so we had a lot of interaction in that um, as well. And uh, well, uh, I already said that I have been academic dean uh, until for 19 years, so that was until 2022. And since then, I have time to more engage in uh, research. I will even have a sabbatical next year. I will be for five months as a visiting fellow at Yale uh, University, Yale Divinity School. I'm really looking forward to it. Maybe uh, what I should add um, is that our youngest daughter, and we have two daughters, we oldest born, been born in the Netherlands, and the youngest was born in the year 2000. And she is now studying psychology. The oldest daughter, to my amazement, decided to study theology and just graduated with a master from our institution, the Evangelical Theological Faculty in Leuven. At our institution, I'm also the director of post-reformation studies. And during the last um, 10 years, I have supervised uh, quite some PhD students, eight um, successfully graduated and uh, where PhD dissertations have been published in peer-reviewed series. And I have at the moment 12 um, additional PhD students. That is quite something, but I do not um, teach so much in the bachelor. So um, the focus is more on uh, um, postgraduate uh, students. And I'm also um, the co-director of the Jonathan Edwards Center Benelux and well, in a bunch of other um, director positions and so on. But um, I, I do not think that I need to mention all of them now. So that <laughs> may be sufficient. Yeah, that's tremendous. So you mentioned when you first began, you found Fuzius and people knew about him. Can you give me a little bit of context? Because I imagine when I look at the sort of statistics, demographics of our listener base, probably 80% of our listeners are based in in the American context. There's about 10 to 15% in the UK-ish area. I don't even know. If I went to, to London, I imagine if I mentioned Fuzius, there's probably not a lot of knowledge of him there. So just give me a little bit of a background for who he is and what he's doing, his context, those sort of things. Sure. Also in Germany, um, only nerds would ever have heard about his name. It's maybe a little bit better after my book of 2007, but still. Um, yes, uh, 
actually in the 17th century, Fuzius was quite important um, as in the 17th century, the Dutch Rep Republic was important and Utrecht University where he was based was important. He was for uh, several decennia at Utrecht University. And sometimes um, he is called the Dutch John Owen, but in a review of my book, Todd Rester rightly um, was uh, writing, uh, saying that maybe um, we even could better say that uh, Owen is the Fuzius of the English. Uh, Fuzius really was important um, in his um, uh, period. He was born in 1589 in a fortress city, Hurston, near Den Bosch. Um, his name um, is uh, written in a little bit different way when it is pronounced because it's actually the um, Dutch term for um, foot. And in Dutch, you also say foot. Also, you, you write it in a different way. And when it's Latinized, and that's why we say Fuzius, at least in the low countries, we say Fuzius. And in his childhood, there was this um, Netherlands struggle for independence in during the 80 years war. And uh, for instance, his grandfather um, was dying uh, from it. And uh, also um, his father was impacted by it. Uh, so there was quite some suffering on both sides. Um, Fuzius started in Leiden. He got a scholarship for it. And he had two interesting teachers, among others, um, namely uh, Jacobus Arminius and Franciscus Comarus. And quite soon, he had more sympathy for Comarus, although later you sometimes see that uh, Fuzius is defending uh, Arminius against uh, accusations uh, from others. That is uh, quite interesting to see. Um, so that he says, well, the later remonstrants are really um, have a different position than the position of Arminius. And uh, the later remonstrants he sees as crypto Socinians, those who are really um, um, translating the works of uh, the Socinians uh, and um, promoting the works of Socinians. And that is uh, something which he didn't find with um, Arminius. But Comarus uh, was his uh, most important uh, teacher. After his studies, he was pastor in Hurston for about 23 years, also in some other villages. And um, for some time, he was in Den Bosch. And that was still Catholic, but he was involved in the Reformation in Den Bosch. And there was a famous uh, theologian, Cornelius Jansinius, who uh, came into debate with Fuzius because of that. And the debate was on the legitimacy of, legitimacy of the um, Reformation. Fuzius greatly admired Jansinius for his um, book on Augustine and divine grace, but the debate was on ecclesiology. And this is one of the earliest uh, books of Fuzius, where you see that he has an amazing knowledge of the church fathers 
and also of uh, medieval theologians. So he is on a par with somebody like Jansenius uh, uh, um, to the amazements of Jansenius. Uh, the book was called Desperata Causa Papatus. So the title is um, telling. Uh, then he was, as I already said, for quite some time a minister. Um, at 1634, uh, in Utrecht, a gymnasium illustre, that's like a college, was founded, and Fuzius was um, asked to become the first theological professor. And two years later, and that was partly because of the fame of Fuzius, it was um, promoted to a full university. In 1634, when Fuzius came to Utrecht, he had a famous inaugural uh, address with a title, De Pietate Cum Scientia Conjungenda. Um, so that um, with science, also piety should be combined. And that was programmatic. And he showed in this lecture the concern for the well-being for students and professors, but that they should take sciences very serious, but also should practice piety and long for God in their scholarly work. And two years later, when this gymnasium became a full um, university, he had a so-called sermon over the nötigkeit der Akademien and the Schulen, and that was in the auditory maximum of the university. So in English, sermon on the use of academies and schools. And he was defending there that really it is of greatest importance to have a university, a reformed uh, university. Um, and I said it, I think this sermon that was in the Utrecht Dom, which had been cathedral in the Utrecht Dom Church, whereas the um, inaugural address was in the auditorium of the uh, university. And Fuzius uh, died in 1676. That means that he has been professor for no less than 42 years. And uh, Utrecht became the central hub of the so-called Nade Reformatie, further reformation, a piety movement, which is um, in some respects close to the Puritan movement or the Pur Puritanism. Fuzius also was um, translating some of the works of um, Puritans. And you could say that Fuzius engaged in contextual theology. He really was looking at the questions that were burning in his time. And in that sense, he was uh, involved in uh, many controversies. But from his perspective, he saw it more as a debate. One of the important controversies, I already mentioned Jansenius, but one of the very important ones is with René Descartes. And I have a whole chapter in my book on this um, important uh, controversy. And um, there were many um, issues involved, but in the 19th century, it was sometimes depicted as if it would be a kind of um, um, conservative reaction 
by the side of a reformed theologian to a progressive new uh, philosophy um, on the side of uh, Descartes. But that is uh, quite unfair and one-sided. Um, in some respects, you could say that uh, Fuzius has been uh, progressive. And uh, interestingly, during the last few decades, um, researchers in the history of philosophy um, who were focusing on the early Enlightenment, which started in the Netherlands with Descartes, um, were pointing out that really there were some interesting uh, issues at stake and that Fuzius had some points in his uh, debates with Descartes. Um, other debates include um, debates with uh, um, the federal theologian Johannes Corseus. Uh, sometimes that is overstated, as if Corseus would not be scholastic or as if Fuzius would, would not be um, advocating federal theology. You also could see Fuzius as somebody advocating covenant theology, but in a different sense than Corseus, and they are both scholastic theologians, because their works are based on uh, scholastic uh, disputations. There are also other um, controversies, um, but maybe um, this is already sufficient to mention uh, we two controversies. Maybe it's good if I say something about um, the works of Fuzius. Yeah. I already mentioned some. Um, most of his works are in Latin. Also, his very first work was in Latin that was um, uh, at the beginning of a so-called Sabbat controversy, which was later with um, Kotzean uh, theologians as well. And it has the strange title, Lacrime Crocodili Absterse, Glanced Crocodile Tears from 1627. But then at 1628, um, he was writing, and that was one of his very few Dutch uh, volumes, Proof van de Kracht der Rotsaligheit, Test of the Power of Piety, where he tries to show that um, we doctrine of uh, divine grace and predestination rightly understood does not um, endanger uh, human activities and does not endanger uh, um, exhortations to um, Christians uh, to follow Christ also with their uh, with with what um, with, uh, with their lifestyle, but to the contrary, that it is uh, giving the most important uh, motivation to do so. Um, and then, yes, what he that was in the beginning when he was at Utrecht working, um, he had one interesting book, another interesting title. It's virtually unknown. Tercites. Auton Timorumenos. So that is referring to a committee written by Terence, and whereas the how Herautin Tomerumenos, that is a self-tormentor, and the Tercitus is the scandal monger in Homer's Iliad. Well, that is um, uh, um, a discussion of some um, points 
that were brought in by um, remonstrant opponents to the disputations of Fuzius. And it's quite interesting to see that some of the later debates are already um, to be found there. And when he was writing the Termino Fitae in 1636, um, he was invited by a physician uh, and many others were invited, also Anna Maria of Schürmann, by the way, the first female student at a university in Europe and uh, Fuzius allowed her to study uh, um, under her because um, she was that brilliant. Um, also had uh, an uh, article in it and some others had an article in volume uh, about the question whether uh, medical help is of any sense if uh, the end of a life is anyhow determined by divine providence. And when Fuzius um, is um, for the first time in his writings coming up with a clear or an extensive exposition of um, the points of contingency and freedom, um, human contingency, uh, human free will, for which contingency is uh, um, necessary uh, precondition. That's quite interesting to read that Determino Fide. This Determino Fide is printed also in an appendix uh, to the fifth volume of his Selecte Disputationes, his Selected Disputations. These are thick, five thick volumes, are the most important sources if you want to understand um, both the dogmatics and also ethics of Fuzius, what we today call systematic theology. The first and the second and the fifth volumes being more dogmatics and the third and the fourth volume being what he called Theologia Practica, practical theology in the narrow sense. And that would be um, ethics. Uh, so these five volumes are very important and at the uh, research uh, group, um, um, classic reformed theology research group uh, from Utrecht, which is now um, uh, still existing in the Netherlands and international with quite a few scholars from ETF Leuven, where I'm based, and I chair this research group since um, 2014. That's already um, a few years, since a few years. Um, in this research group, we were, um, I have it here, already in 1995, working at a volume of a few disputations of Fuzius, but that was um, really almost the only <laughs> sample of disputations from these um, five volumes of disputationes selected and where virtually no uh, disputations uh, translated uh, yet. Um, it would also be difficult to translate them because um, they are sometimes um, yeah, quite um, chaotic. They are not that nicely written as, for instance, um, the Institutio of Tertini. So there are also some obvious reasons. Uh, and then another important work is his Politica Ecclesiastica. That's a massive work on um, church law, 
discussing all types of practical questions. And he also became famous for his Politica Ecclesiastica, which also is part of um, practical theology in the narrow sense. Another volume, and that has been translated, is his Ta Asketica, Sieve Exercitia Pietatis. Um, so the exercise of piety, which is not so much a spiritual writing or spiritual text, but it's an academic text about spirituality, also consisting out of disputations. It's from 1664. And this has been translated into Dutch uh, and annotated uh, by um, somebody who is also a member of our Classic Reformed Theology uh, Research Group, um, Case Denit. Uh, there are some other smaller works, uh, for instance, his Syllabus Problematum Theologicorum. That's a list of questions and brief answers. There is a whole system of abbreviations for that type of answers you could give. For instance, affirmatur cum distinctione, and, um, um, affirmed with a distinction. And when that was for exercise for the students, when they should um, um, be able to explain why this is the right answer or uh, what different answer would be possible for a certain question. So a list of questions, like uh, that is something from a scholastic method anyhow. If you are looking to the Summa Theologiae of uh, Thomas Aquinas, that also consists of a list of questions which are divided into articuli, which are questions again. And, um, also his Catechisatzi of the Heidelbergs and Catechismus, that is the second important work which he wrote in Dutch. I understood that uh, there is at the moment a project at the University of Edinburgh to um, uh, translate this into English. They asked me to write the foreword for that and I'm waiting until it's ready. And then he has also some other smaller works, but I think the list is long uh, enough already. Well, I, I now I have a new list of things that I need to read, and it's ever-growing, it seems. So one of the, the pieces that I have read of Fuzius was translated. It, I don't know if it's part of a larger work or if it's a standalone thing. It's um, on God's absolutely single, simple essence. And in that short treatise or whatever it is, he's interestingly working between the thought of Scotus and Thomas Aquinas in ways that I don't necessarily see a lot of other reformers doing. So I would, given the almost renaissance of scholasticism today and a lot of our, our educational places where there's been a return of scholastic theology is good and can be helpful, how is he really interacting with Thomas and Scotus and others across the spectrum? Is he using one more than the other? Is he influenced more by one more than the other or others besides these two figures? Yeah, uh, thank you. These are good questions. And indeed, I forgot. I also saw that somewhere on the Internet that recently this disputation related to the simplicity of um, God has been translated by somebody was the name Lynch? Uh, I'm, oh, Michael Lynch. Michael Lynch. I'm. I'm not sure who translated. Ryan Hurd is the one that I. The one that oh, I had oh, read. Oh, that, that may be the case. So I. I saw it also. I. I still have to get hold of this translation, 
<laughs> but I saw that it seems to exist. It didn't exist when I was writing my book or um, <laughs> editing it. Um, yes. Uh, um, first of all, one of the interesting points with Fuzius is that he is um, really interacting with a lot of scholars throughout the whole history of theology and philosophy. And uh, he is giving quite some quotes, paraphrases. He must have had uh, um, amazing uh, memory. And that brings me to that I forgot to mention one very important work of, of him. And that was the Exercitia et Bibliotheca Studiosi Theologiae, a, a library um, or a theological outline, an outline of what theological studies should lo look like. It was where in many editions, um, I think four editions, and it was the first one was uh, 6044. And if you are looking to this program, several hundred of pages of what uh, his students had as recommended literature, that is really amazing. And it embraces um, uh, many patristic authors. Uh, a lot of um, medieval authors, authors of his own time, and uh, also um, authors from uh, different um, uh, disciplines, not just theology or philosophy if it comes to contemporary authors. So Fuzius is referring um, to a lot of um, sources, um, and that makes it quite interesting. And he goes into detail. His um, selected disputations, uh, they are called that way, and what you was referring to is one of these selected disputations. He did not write a full uh, systematic theological system. System is a 19th century term anyhow, but he did not do that. He rather was um, pointing out some questions and he was going into depth for them. So his um, disputation on um, middle knowledge, the Scientia Media, where he discusses the Molinistic position, is one of the most extensive um, uh, um, discussions of the Molinistic position from the reformed side of his time, together with um, another work uh, of William Twiss. Okay, and um, in terms of quotes, you see, that he does a lot with uh, Thomas um, Aquinas. But the interesting thing is that um, uh, Thomas, uh, uh, there is a commentary tradition on the Summa Theologiae um, starting in the um, uh, yeah, a little bit earlier, but mainly it, it becomes very important in the 16th century and continuing in the 17th century. And also all the Jesuit theologians had to study Thomas Aquinas. So there's a lot of interpretation and studying of Aquinas in his time. Also, some of the disputations of Fuzius are on the Summa Theologiae of Aquinas commenting it. But, but when, how do you read Aquinas? Do you read Aquinas as a historical figure? Well, um, uh, the historical method was not developed as it is now in that time. 
or was he read within the own framework, within the own um, conceptual framework that they had. I think the latter is often the case and you can see quite diverse interpretations of Aquinas. Now, if you try to understand these interpretations of Aquinas in historical perspective, then um, the influence of Chantan's Scotus uh, comes into picture and plays an important role. Uh, many elements of Aquinas are read in a different way, even by so-called Thomistic um, uh, scholars or by Dominicans um, after they uh, after the discussions in the 14th century between the uh, Thomistic school and the um, uh, uh, Scotistic school. And Fuzio sometimes refers, sometimes he refers to Scotus and says clearly, I'm following here Scotus. But more often than that, he is um, referring to somebody like um, the Franciscan. Um, uh, theologian Tirada, who wrote a whole book about controversies between the diverse schools, or to other Franciscan theologians like Theodore's Missing. And when you can see that Fuzius is actually sympathizing with them, uh, if it comes uh, to um, uh, the doctrine of divine uh, simplicity and implications of his doctrine, you can see in this disputation, but there is also another disputation, which is not in his selected disputationis, which I discovered at um, Endorfer um, uh, 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 Library of Harvard uh, University. Um, in, 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 in these disputations, in, 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 in this disputation, he refers often to missing. And when you see that there is clearly an interpretation of Aquinas, which can only be understood if you are aware of um, the position of Chandan's Scotus. So sometimes Dan's Scotus comes in an indirect way uh, into picture, sometimes in a direct way. And um, also some uh, it's you, you need some background in uh, some primary resources, but also in scholarship on medieval um, theologians in order to um, be able to have a good estimation of what is going on in these discussions in early modernity. And we are together as a scholarly community starting to learn that. But that was really my starting point. I already said in the 90s that I was starting with um, studying Thomas Aquinas, um, Chantan's Cordus, and uh, some things yeah, resonate really if you if you are reading Puzius and seeing what, what he is doing. I, I can mention one example. There has been um, some reactions on my German uh, version of the book of Fuzius um, from 2007. And um, a few years later, Richard Muller, and we are good friends, he wrote an article, um, not Scotist, and when he is uh, referring to um, Simon Burton, 
uh, his wonderful PhD uh, dissertation and, and also uh, to my book among others. And well, I agree with a lot of what Richard Muller is saying there. Um, but I do not agree with um, what he says about or seems to um, seems to presuppose about what we um, concept of university according to Chantan's quotas would look like. What um, uh, is rejected, what he rejects would also be rejected by Danskotos and is rejected by Fuzius. So he is right that Fuzius is um, rejecting a certain position, but um, the position of uh, on university of uh, Danskotos um, is, a, in my opinion, and I have uh, some hints in the footnotes, I try to explain it, a different one and that maybe goes a little far to explain it but um, this is this is one of of the examples uh, where you see um, um, implicitly more scores behind when it seems to be on first side but sometimes it's also explicitly quite clear um, for instance um, for Fuzius, the whole theology in its genre is um, uh, practical, like with Chandan's Cortus. For Thomas Aquinas, it's a mixed discipline. It uh, is partly theoretical, partly practical. For um, uh, Fuzius, it is practical. As a joke, uh, or joke, it's a quite serious joke. Um, uh, when uh, Martin, uh, when uh, Richard Muller um, uh, retired, there was a festschrift, wonderful festschrift. He joked that he was so happy that he got it uh, as a present because otherwise he could not afford the book. It's like <laughs> with my own book, with Brill, <laughs> it's unaffordable. <laughs> and I have an article where, and I call it a scholastic exercise, uh, Fuzius on happiness. And where I analyze a disputation of uh, Fuzius, where he is um, commenting on the Summa Theologiae of Aquinas. And it's on Aquinas, of course. Mm -hmm. But when he is uh, really um, bringing up this whole commentary tradition, both uh, to uh, Peter Lombard, but also to the Summa of um, Aquinas. And at the end, he, it becomes clear that he sympathizes with an interpretation which is much closer to the Scotistic position than to the position on Aquinas himself. Although it is on Aquinas. So this is a sample in his, yeah. a, a whole disputation in his own oeuvre, um, which, which shows that things are more complicated when they seem to be on first sight. Um, yeah, everybody can read it. Or, yeah, you know, so your your point about university, I agree with you on that. I I do think that there is some disconnect between what Richard Muller is critiquing versus what Scotus is actually trying to advocate for. I you mentioned Fuzius's reliance um, on some Franciscans, and I'm curious if somebody like Suarez is important for him. Oh yes, surely um, Suarez is one of. Um, he, he read the Franciscans, but he read also Suarez. 
I have here actually you can see at least uh, uh, um, volumes, um, peak volumes on the third row from above. Um, mm -hmm. What you see, it's the second row from above. These are the opera omnia from Suarez. Okay. With the exception of two volumes, which are in my office, the disputation is metaphysical because I use them that often. But Fuzius um, um, knew them very well. And in Suarez, you find also these type of discussions. Uh, at, at many points, Suarez is closer to Scotus than to Aquinas. Although, again, he had to follow um, Aquinas as a uh, Jesuit uh, uh, scholar, but not only um, Suarez, but also Fonseca and Molina himself is very important. But but when also Dominican uh, figures like Alvarez, Diego Alvarez or Banias himself, um, he really was um, using them um, as much as he used um, reformed or Lutheran authors. And um, he says uh, at some place uh, where uh, Suarez is right, he is the best of all of them. Hmm. So there was also a level of admiration of Suarez, but it, if it comes to the concept of middle knowledge, or he saw him as somebody who had a hypothetical version of predestination, a hypothetical version of grace, and so he called him the princeps hypothetical hypotheticorum, so the, 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 the first or the principle of, of those who um, have a hypothetical uh, position. So when it comes to his work on freedom and contingency, um, how unique is he actually? Is he reacting to somebody like Jacob Arminius in, in some ways, and that's causing him to be original in some ways? Or is he trying to regurgitate what is more standard when we think of, I guess now on, on the other side of Dort and everything, I think most people, when they think of reformed theology, they think of Dort when it comes to, to freedom and contingency, how similar or original is he to some of these different streams? Yeah. Um, by the way, he was one of the youngest delegates of the Synod of Dort. That is what I forgot uh, to mention, but, um, yeah, how original is he? Um, Fuzius did not try to be original. That's a little bit of a modern question to ask about uh, originality. But if we want to know how, um, then it's it's the level of detail uh, that he has. It's, it's also um, how far he sometimes goes in recognizing um, points of agreements with his opponents, but when still rejecting them, their position on other points. I can uh, mention an example. Um, when he discusses um, uh, middle knowledge, the concept of middle knowledge, when he, um, he, he says, yes, um, God also has um, knowledge of counterfactuals. So the objects of uh, middle knowledge are uh, usually um, um, a future contingents, which um, actually will not happen, which could happen and would happen, but will not happen. 
And Fuchsius says, yes, but uh, God also indeed knows we. So the dispute is not about whether God knows we or does not know we, but whether um, divine uh, knowledge is um, pre, uh, pre-volitional or post-volitional. So whether it is based on the divine decree or not. And um, if you compare with Arminius, if you compare with the Molinists, uh, Arminius can, comes close to the Molinistic uh, position. And you see the level of detail with Fuchsius, then what is, um, he makes it perhaps more clear than some others, although he is uh, very much in continuity with others like uh, Franciscus uh, Gomarus, but he manages it to, to make it quite clear that um, emphasizing the divine decree is not a threat to human contingency or freedom, but um, it um, actually makes uh, human contingency and freedom um, possible. And in that regard, he is again close to Chandan's um, causes. Maybe I have to explain something in that regard, which is quite important. Um, Scotus and Aquinas, I do not think that if it comes to the patrimonium fidei, to the um, basic content of what we believe, that there is a lot of uh, difference. It's the theoretical outworking. It's um, how much, for instance, Aristotelian cosmology um, can play a role. It's more on the uh, conceptual level. And um, what is less clear with Aquinas is that um, he can maintain that divine foreknowledge really is contingent. And why is that less clear? Because it is less clear with Aquinas that uh, contingent uh, foreknowledge would follow um, or be based in some sense, and I say it now very roughly and carefully because it's much more complicated, on um, the contingency of a divine will. But that is what um, Scotus is um, working out, also in his um, distinction of different stages. When we are back with um, uh, the subject of divine simplicity, which we had, um, Fuzius um, has a version of divine simplicity which allows for several stages, uh, um, but these are not these are stages in our understanding, and these are not stages in time, but stages which still um, have an ontological foundation. Um, so in our understanding, but with an ontological foundation, without saying that uh, God would be discursive or what, that God would be need steps in his um, thought like, like, like we have. But, but for, for Scotus, um, and that is an extrapolation, it's um, more complicated if we stick with the text of Scotus himself, but as, it, as they worked for somebody like Fuzius, when it was that God um, first knows 
all possible states of affairs. And when he knows uh, what the selection of a divine will would be for um, bringing possible states of affairs into being, and when he knows his own will, and for that reason, um, he contingently knows what are the objects. The point is that um, the um, necessitas consequentiae um, is distinct from a necessitas consequentis, but that only is helpful if the antecedent is contingent as well. And if um, the antecedent divine foreknowledge would be necessary, when by the virtue of a necessity of a consequence, the antecedent, the foreknown object would be necessary as well. And um, there, Danskrotos brings in um, the contingency of a divine will, which is decisive. And uh, the contingency of divine foreknowledge is based on the uh, contingency of a divine will. And so Scrotus makes clear that foreknowledge is really contingent. And when, um, even if there is this necessitas consequentiae, still the foreknown objects can be contingent as well. And that is not that clear with Aquinas that it would work out. And, but this was really a very important point for somebody uh, like Fuzius. So Scotus uses these different stages as a kind of model, or he calls it instantia naturae, instances of nature, a terminology which also used by uh, Fuzius, and which they all find in the writings of the Jesuits and the Dominicans of the second half of the 16th century. It's also rare with Suarez or with Molina, but it's applied in a different way. But um, now, now back to uh, Scotus, um, in the interpretation of somebody like uh, Fuzius, when uh, God knows all possibilities, and because if something is possible, it is necessary that this is possible, this is called the natural knowledge or the necessary knowledge. So God necessarily knows all the possibilities. And he also knows which of these possibilities will be actualized by the contingent and free divine decree. And contingent means non-necessary. So by the non-necessary divine decree. And because he knows which of these um, possibilities will be actualized by the divine decree, he also knows um, which are the um, actualized um, uh, states of affairs, even if they are contingent. And that includes states of affairs such as my uh, choice to have this interview right now. My decision, the decision of my will, the choice of my will. So it includes um, human uh, free uh, choice. Okay, and the crucial important thing is where in the non-necessity of a divine decree on which the non-necessity 
of the divine foreknowledge is based. Um, with Aquinas, you find um, some places where he says something which can later and has later be um, read in a Scotistic way. But um, if you uh, do not read it <laughs> um, post Scotus, but pre Scotus, when it is less, less clear whether it is really meant in such a Scotistic way, there are even quite some um, sayings of Aquinas who make such an interpretation um, problematic and point into the direction that for Aquinas, um, there is not so much the point that um, divine foreknowledge is um, in that way, as I just explained it, non-necessary or uh, contingent um, divine uh, foreknowledge. Now, for Scotus and, of, and for some Dominicans and for somebody like Fuzius, the contingency of a divine decree is very important uh, in that regard. Uh, Molina is more working on um, the level of um, uh, knowledge and focusing on the pre-volitional um, middle knowledge, which he also says it is uh, contingent. But uh, somebody like Fuzius would be afraid that this actually can um, then uh, amount to necessary knowledge after all, because the only candidate who could bring in contingency would precisely be the divine decree, the divine will. And why is that so important? I try to explain it in terms of possible world semantics. And that is just a tool that is just uh, as a de by definition. And it is uh, anachronistic in a sense in that it is an extrapolation, although Fuzius at some pl one place speaks about possible worlds. Um, and uh, also, for instance, in the uh, condemnations of 1277, uh, where 219 Aristotelian um, uh, theses uh, were um, uh, rejected uh, at the University of Paris, and later it was also endorsed by the University of uh, Oxford and by the Pope, includes also some uh, theses on uh, that uh, possible worlds would be rejected. Okay, um, but but now we are on the level of definition. Say that um, the sum of um, all events in this world, we would call the sum of all such events that can be there throughout all time, we would call that a possible world. And to keep it easy, we are looking at our actual world. So everything which has been, which is, which will be, is um, our actual world. If we just look at this actual world through time, we can see some changes. But what we cannot see is whether something at a certain moment could be different than it is. We only see that perhaps it is later different. Now, in order to um, give an illustration or um, an imagination of this possibility 
dimension of the actual world, in possible world semantics, what is possible in the actual world would be called actual in another possible world. So you have another possible world where everything would be, almost everything would be the same, but we wouldn't have an interview right now. There are possible worlds in which you exist and I would not exist. Um, from a Christian standpoint, I would say there is no possible world in which God does not exist. So um, what is necessary exists in all, every possible world. What is contingent exists in at least one possible world, but not in all, because it is non-necessary. What is impossible is true in no possible world. And what is possible is true in at least one possible world. And also what is necessary would be possible. Okay. If we now say um, the divine foreknowledge is necessary. Plus, we would say that divine foreknowledge is infallible. When we would say in every possible world, God foreknows that we now have this interview. But if it's infallible, then in every possible world, it's true that we have this interview. And that would make everything necessary. And for Fuzius, if I now extrapolate, it is important to say no. There are possible worlds in which it is not the case that God knows that we have this interview. And in these possible worlds, we do not have this interview. So, um, that we decided to have this interview and having it right now is contingent and divine foreknowledge on this is also contingent and it is based on the contingency of um, the divine will and the problem with Aquinas would be that it is not that clear that he really is able to um, have a theoretical a framework in which where is the contingency of um, divine uh, foreknowledge. And this also now helps to explain the distinction between the necessity of a consequence and the necessity, necessity of a consequence. Um, the necessity of a consequence would say if we apply it to divine foreknowledge, uh, necessarily, if God foreknows something, the foreknown object um, um, is um, uh, the case. So that is a necessary relationship. That says that in every possible world in which God foreknows that we have the interview, we do have the interview. But as such, that does not mean that from this it follows that we have in every possible world the interview. It only follows that in every possible world in which God foreknows that we have the interview, he does have the interview. But if the antecedent, God's foreknowledge, would be necessary, when by virtue of the necessity of a consequence, by virtue of the necessary relationship between the foreknowledge and the foreknown object, when our interview would be necessary as well, and when it would be there in every possible world. So to bring in contingency, um, the divine contingent will plays a very important role for Fuzius. But what also would 
is important to say is that contingency, as I just explained, is is a necessary but not a contingent uh, condition for freedom. Uh, for freedom, it's also important that um, uh, for your free decision, uh, you are in a certain sense the subject of this decision, the former subject. And that is also a point um, that um, uh, Fuzius makes clear. But um, you could imagine, yeah, he speaks about um, secondary causes, um, something which is problematized by René Descartes, because he destroys in the point of view of Fuzius the very um, metaphysical basis for secondary causes, and when it would amount to uh, omni-causality of God, that is one of his criticisms on René Descartes. But uh, okay, but Fuzius um, works with it that there are secondary causes and free secondary causes, like our free um, decision of the will, uh, free secondary uh, causes, but they are, as it were, um, under the regime of a primary cause, but the primary cause is on a very, very different order. So it's not like um, a billiard balls of um, uh, David Hume, where one is uh, going to the other on the same level. No, um, it's, it's on a very different level, on such a level that um, the divine uh, primary cause, according to Fuzius, does not um, in any way impact or destroy the contingency and freedom of a secondary causes. Um, and he tries to explain how both can be true together. So when you explain the compatibility, what he says is not possible to explain is how precisely this is working out to understand the divine mind in that regard, although there remains a mystery, but as to the um, compatibility that both can be true, that um, secondary causes are free, and in a very different understanding of cause, which is a broad term in his days, there is also the divine cause. Um, yeah, that is something which he brings uh, together, and he, he brings it together in a different way when uh, often in modern uh, days compatibilism, although this term is fluid, it's uh, used by different philosophers in different ways, but uh, there are standard interpretation of compatibilism. And in this uh, standard uh, interpretation, it is often the case that uh, freedom would be reduced to some spontaneity and not so much in the sense of alternativity. But for Fuzius, freedom of alternativity is, um, is important. But there are also some philosophers now who use um, compatibilism in a different sense. It really depends from the definition. But uh, Paul Helm, for instance, which with whom I have been in dispute, uh, I was uh, uh, I had an article on Fuzius in a volume, uh, Reformed um, Reformation and Scholastic Decision in 2001, that goes yeah. back to a conference in 1997. And Paul Helm was reacting on this article. And uh, when in a Dutch uh, journal, he um, was reacting on it. And I had half of the pages. 
I almost wrote the whole article, but I did it together with um, Anton Foss. Um, and he responded back. He was saying in his response that he was not very much impressed by our response. But <laughs> actually, I can tell you, maybe I can say that now, that what actually then was printed as his um, original article was a different version mm -hmm. <laughs> than the one on which um, we reacted with some of the elements which were our criticism being corrected already. But, but where he um, really seems to um, deny that there is a kind of um, uh, alternativity which would presuppose what you could call, if you wish, what's in a term, but you could call it a synchronic contingency, um, which is presupposed. So he is uh, rejecting that. So in his um, interpretation of compatibilism, that would really be different from um, the position of um, somebody like Fuzius, as it is also explained in this volume, in, in the volume Reform Thought on Freedom, that's from 2010, but it was there for many years with a publisher. And most of the articles we did in the 90s, um, that was still at Utrecht University. And I'm not sure, was it in 98 or 99? But for a few months, Richard Muller has been a um, guest professor at the University of Utrecht. And at, at that time, I wrote um, the draft for a chapter on Turretini. So I'm the co-authors on this chapter. And we had quite some discussions about, um, because Turretini um, uh, tries to show that um, the kind of indifference which the Jesuits advocate um, are not uh, the reformed position. But by doing so, he allows for a different kind of indifference which he presupposes and which is important. And in, in my draft article, I was pointing out that um, it is not that he rejects indifference. It's not that he just comes to that point that uh, freedom is re restricted only to spontaneity, although he says that's the essence of freedom, but that uh, a certain kind of indifference in the divided sense or in the first act is still presupposed. Uh, on that, Paul Helm was reacting again, but that was very interesting that during these debates, Richard Muller really um, yeah, um, became convinced also uh, on this interpretation. He later wrote his book um, where he tried to have a kind of middle position. I have it here somewhere, Divine uh, Will and Human Choice. Yeah, Divine Will and Human Choice is, is the title. Um, to be honest, um, I do not think that his interpretation of Hutius or Turretini, which he has in his volume Divine Will and Human Choice at the end, is so much different from the one here in Reformed Thought on Freedom, although he is more reluctant in using a terminology which is not really historical terminology. So he is reluctant in using a synchronic contingency. But by the way, Chandans Kurtus also never used the term synchronic contingency. That is just from scholarship, but it is well established with Scotus research. And there is not so much difference between the concept of uh, contingency that somebody like Fuzius, I wrote the chapter on Fuzius based on a disputation 
which I found um, in uh, when I was uh, at the Henry Meter Center fellow. And when I had the chance in America to look for disputations, I found one in Harvard Endeavor University, which was unknown. Um, and I showed it to Richard Muller. We both were amazed. That was wonderful. <laughs> and uh, that, that became a basis of, uh, of um, um, the chapter in, 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 in this volume. And actually, um, Richard is quite close in, uh, uh, in his interpretation, but he avoids he also resists to use the term compatibilism. Yeah. If only for a reason that it was not used by the scholastics at that time. And I respect that because there is a lot of confusion in the term of compatibilism. And I think that um, there, um, we, we, um, this resistance of uh, Mahler has important precedent because he started in Christ and the Decree in his PhD dissertation on showing that there is not something like a central dogma. Yeah. Uh, and, and really, there is not a central dogma or principles. Huh? In the past, Bartians were speaking about a formal principle and material principle of theology with a reform scholastic. And he was saying, no, I'm looking now at the prolegomena. He came up with this whole prolegomena uh, project when he showed well, they speak about principles, but they have it about the principi principium um, cognoscenti, which is scripture, and the principium mm -hmm. essenti, which is um, God. Mm -hmm. And so I I appreciated that uh, Richard is um, trying to stick as closely as possible with its terminology. But on the other hand, I think that it can sometimes be helpful to use logical formula or um, 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 uh, possible world semantics to use that kind of models. And quite interestingly, this distinction between the necessity of a consequence and the necessity of a consequent has been rediscovered mm -hmm. in uh, the 20th century by Erwin Blandinka in one of his works. I think it's oh, yes. in his nature of necessity Yes. Wonderful uh, uh, volume from 76, if I'm, I can be wrong, but I think it's from 76. But that's one of, of his best, I just have to say it, my first PhD student did his PhD on Erwin Plandinkra. So it's a little bit a hobby of mine, uh, wow. analytic philosophy and Plandinkra. He really introduced Plandinkra in the epistemology of Plantinka to a German-speaking audience because it was virtually unknown there and it is published in a very good uh, peer-reviewed weeks with Vandenhoek and Ruprecht that was in 2010. But, but well, um, so some of these distinctions have been rediscovered by, mm -hmm. um, by, by philosophers like, like, like Plantinka. And, and to make a little bit of a link between analytic philosophy and what is going on in um, reformed scholasticism, I think that also can be helpful. You see much more of these links between um, uh, medieval philosophy and um, uh, analytic uh, philosophy. Norman Kretzmann, uh, mm -hmm. uh, who was the teacher of Eleanor Stump, whom I admire greatly, His, her book on Aquinas, that's just marvelous. But, but where these disciplines come together, or um, what's uh, Marilyn McCord Adams, who um, mm -hmm. died so early here, her wonderful two volumes of 
Dream of Ockham. Um, it's it's now better than it was with many um, reformed theologians being interested finally in, with, in Thomas Aquinas. But in the past, I was so amazed that if I, um, in the nineties, if I had to look to these medieval figures, uh, it, it was uh, almost um, exclusively uh, philosophical literature mm -hmm. I had to study and not uh, written by uh, theologians, although they were uh, theologians. I often happened to be at a conference as being one or two of a very few um, uh, theologians and all the other participants being philosophers or from other disciplines. Okay. <laughs> Oh, I like this. So you're like one of the unicorns here for our show because we, I, I consider myself like an analytic theologian. So the sort of the mix between wanting to pull from reformed scholasticism and, and, and work through some of the questions and the concepts in analytic philosophy. So the fact that your first PhD student is working on Alvin Plantiga is, is was awesome. working. It was working. Yeah, I guess it was working. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so what I want to do is number one, thank you for taking the time to walk me through all this. This has been tremendously helpful, a great resource. Um, I want though, for those who are interested in learning more about, uh, Fuzius or, or reform scholasticism, is there a place that they can go to follow your work? Um, is there like an online website that you post different things that they can keep up with? Well, I'm actually not so much a figure of social media, but I started using LinkedIn mm. um, a few months ago. And I have uh, now some contacts in LinkedIn. And um, I have an institutional website, which uh, keeps my bibliography up to date. Perfect. And I asked my uh, daughter, who also um, knows how to create websites, whether she perhaps could make a personal website for me. Maybe she will, but that will <laughs> take some time. For the time being, um, you can look at, uh, at the website uh, of, of my institutional website. And I appreciate if um, those who are interested in my work, if, if they uh, contact me through LinkedIn, just uh, they can send me invitations to connect and then we can get connected. And if there is something uh, important, I also can post it on LinkedIn. Awesome. That's tremendous. So Dr. Beck, this has been awesome. Thank you for your research and the time you've, you've given uh, the decades of research thinking that's been beneficial. As a reminder, though, uh, the book from Brill that we've talked a little bit about, uh, Fuzius and God, Freedom and Contingency, is pricey. So what I tell people to do for the expensive books is make sure your library has a copy of it. They have a budget for these things and they can go purchase it and then you can share it with your friends and I'll read it and discuss it. Yes, plus, plus um, the best thing is if the library has a physical copy, but also is it subscribing to the electronic copy. Mm -hmm. and if, if the library is subscribing to the ebook, there's a possibility with Braille to have it printed for yourself and they make a nice paperback out of it and it's about 25 or 30 dollars or so so it's a fraction of the original price and that can be a service by Brill if a library subscribes to both the um, physical and the um, ebook. 
That's awesome. I did not know that. So now, now I'm going to have to tell people to do that. That's very <laughs> cool. Thank you for that. Um, so for everybody who's been tuning in, we appreciate you listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you all soon.